Hi, I'm Alex. And I'm Brenda. Welcome to Conversational Counseling, where counseling and discipleship meet. Today in our series for the wisdom that we need for life's common struggles, we're going to talk about the most common struggle people face, and that is anxiety. In fact, anxiety has been dubbed as the number one mental health disorder. Well, hi, Alex. Hey, Brenda. (laughs) Good to be on with you today. I'm excited about our series on common life struggles. And today in our series for the wisdom that we need for life's common struggles, we're going to talk about the most common struggle people face, and that is anxiety. In fact, anxiety has been dubbed as the number one mental health disorder. And it's Mm. not a surprise to us at all when we look around and we just consider all the potential threats to our being and the, to, to those we love and all the unknowns. But the good news is that God knows our struggles, our anxieties, and our fears. Um, and he, you know, he's, he talks about these through the pages of Scripture. I always think if I was writing the Bible, I would have taken out all the bad stuff, you know, and just put all the good stuff in. <laughs> but I love that God didn't do that because He knew that we needed to, you know, hear all the stories, understand all real, all the real life struggles, um, and then He, you know, He speaks repeatedly in a way to invite us to trust Him. I love what my friend Marty Solomon says. He's always talking about trusting the story, and mm-hmm. I think when we think about anxiety, we really begin to um, realize how much God is inviting us, desiring for us to trust the the, the arc story of, of the scriptures and how our story fits into it. So um, as I was thinking about this topic of anxiety, I was reminded of a movie that I saw that I really like called Bridge of Spies. Did you happen to ever see that movie? I've never seen that movie. Mm-mm. Oh, you, you got to watch it. It is a great mm-hmm. movie. It's based on a true story through the Cold War era. And Tom Hanks, which is one of my favorite actors of all times, plays as the mm-hmm. attorney who's going to negotiate a deal between a Russian spy to exchange him for a captured U.S. spy. And this Russian spy um, that's been convicted, his name is Rudolf Abel. And the whole you know movie is about how the deal is going back and forth and all the dynamics of the characters. But, but eventually, the deal is brokered and Abel is going to be sent back to Russia where he knows really he's going to be executed there. Mm-hmm. And then during the spy swap, um, Hank and the Russians... Um, are meeting the other meeting on the bridge with the spies for this swap. And Tom Hanks looks at this Russian spy and says, um, Hey, are, are you worried about what's going to happen when you get to the other side? And the Russian spy so calmly looks at him and just says, would it help? <laughs> and that's just kind of it. Like, would it help? And so uh-huh. those three words really became a catchphrase for me. And Paul and uh-huh. I would joke about this a lot, but I would go to Paul and say, hey, honey, I'm so worried about so-and-so and so. Are you worried? And Paul would say, would it help? You know, with that kind of <laughs> Russian accent. And it was always just a reminder to me that, no, it's not going to help anything. And in fact, uh-huh. it's probably going to make, you know, matters worse. And um, mm-hmm. I think Jesus says something similar in Matthew 6, 27. Um, when he says, can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And I think Jesus is just highlighting, just like this Russian spy, the absolute futility of worry. Yeah, I think there's a statistic out there somewhere of like, what is it? 
95% of the things we worry about don't ever come true. So there really is a futility to the things yeah. that we um, that create our anxiety. So to start off, I think it might help us to define anxiety. Today, as we talk about it, we're going to talk about it as both sin and suffering. We're going to talk about it as ways that we um, understand our frailty, our finiteness, but also as ways that we definitely... Um, maybe take try to take back control from God. And so um, we're going to talk about it in both ways. But we're defining anxiety today as concern that is out of control, and it's often focused on the wrong day. And so Corey Ten Boom has this great quote. She says, Worrying is carrying tomorrow's load with today's strength. Mm. And that carrying two days at once. It is moving into tomorrow ahead of time. Worrying doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Ooh, preach, Corey. I'm saying. <laughs> so good. <laughs> she's one of those people, too, Brenda, that I always say, like, when she says something, I'm going to pay attention because she yes. kind of has the right to speak into yes. these places of suffering. But I think it's a great point because I, I think um, someone once described to me as anxiety um, being <clears throat> us, um, what we're doing is we're running around in our brain. Mm. And that um, that we often feel exhausted and we mm-hmm. often feel completely depleted. And we feel mm-hmm. depleted not because we've physically been running around, but we have been mentally running around in our brain. And mm-hmm. so I think it's just a good image for me because it helps me, again, to see that, like, I'm not gaining strength from this. It's not helping. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, the only English word for worry means to strangle the mind. isn't that what it feels like that's a very good illustration yeah Yeah. strangling the mind and i think that's a really good um it's actually a really good word too because part of what our body experiences when we experience anxiety is a feeling often people will say of tightness in their chest Mm -hmm. short of breath like a strangling and so we can Mm -hmm. remember that worry is a strangling of the mind Proverbs says anxiety weighs the heart down. And so there is definitely a sense that anxiety has both a spiritual and a body component. This is an inner and outer man, and we're going to talk about that. But what we know for sure, and probably there isn't a day goes by that we personally don't wrestle with anxiety and that we don't encounter somebody who's wrestling with anxiety. Mm -hmm. It is definitely part of the human condition. So um, with all that we just have access to, you would almost think that it would, like on the internet, information, technology, you would think that it would lower our anxiety. But I actually, um, just this morning, read an article in the New York Times about how social media and the internet is increasing anxiety, particularly among teenage girls. But mm-hmm. this information age is not um, lowering our anxiety, it's actually raising our anxiety. And so there's some interesting implications to that. But I think what we see is that we experience anxiety the most, or at least I do, and I think most people do, when things are uncertain. And I think that's why we think that technology is going to counteract the anxiety, but it doesn't because it doesn't give us a sense of certainty. And so when things are uncertainty, we, uncertain, we tend to worry more. And particularly, I think, when things are uncertain in the case of like something could threaten our health or well-being or the health or well-being or safety of the people that we love. Yeah. 
Oh, those are all such great points. I was thinking of one of the things you said about we worry 95% of the time about things that don't happen. And so Mm -hmm. often I walked through my life and I was like, gosh, I spent so much time worrying about that. I should have been worrying about this. Yeah, because this is what really happened. (laughs) Because this actually came to be and I didn't even know to worry about it, you know. Um, And then I think, you know, there's this sense in which this technology age is so wonderful, but we weren't meant to be omniscient. I'm even Mm -hmm. thinking about all the tools and resources parents have, or we have to track our family members, where they go, what they're doing, all of that kind of things that that kind of put us in that realm of trying to be omniscient. I I just know everything, but it is interesting. I, even though I may know a lot, I can't control most of it. And so therein lies the problem. And um, yeah, the the good things can sometimes turn into not so good things. Well, the other thing about anxiety, it's a suffering issue, but it also can be uh, a way that God exposes what's in our heart. Mm -hmm. A desire for control a lot of times is, you know, at that heart of when we get anxious, we want to control uh, because we a lot of times want to control for good outcomes or to mitigate bad outcomes or harm to ourselves or those we love. But God really wants us to turn our worry into worship. And worship, Mm -hmm. Alex, as we know, is just an opportunity to love, trust, and obey Him. Mm -hmm. And to live out of that sense, I was uh, listening to Kurt Thompson recently, and he was talking about this desire we have to know. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, we want to know things, and we want to know things because we want certainty, and we want ease. But he was saying the most important thing is not what we know, but that we're known. And that's really at the heart of worship is trusting God. Like Mm -hmm. when we trust Him, then we're going to love Him and obey Him. And so it's more important to be known than to know stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. I I was thinking also, just as we're thinking about anxiety being one of those struggles where we can see the suffering and sinning component, my daughter Mm -hmm. just had her first baby five weeks Mm -hmm. ago, and he's precious, and I'm getting a lot of time with him. It's funny because I... I just, you know, go knock on her door about every day because I just, quote, unquote, happen to be in the neighborhood. But the reality is we know that I live in the neighborhood. (laughs) So I'm loving all of this time. We had our first little spend the night party uh, this weekend, too. But at any rate, as a first time mama, you know, she is wrestling with a lot of anxieties. And um, I mean, I'm. Oh, so much. And and Alex, I just forgot. I forgot how hard it was to have an infant, particularly for the first time. Oh, my word. Um, But, you know, I can see both her frailty and her fallenness, right? Mm -hmm. Both as she's struggling. Um, First of all, she's completely sleep deprived. Bless her heart. I think she's had no more than three, but about two hours of sleep, 24-7 for the last five weeks. Yeah. And um, sleep deprivation will will make you cray-cray. Yes. Yeah. And so will raging hormones. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which we're she's on the also, other end of that. We can oh, testify to the other yes. end. Yes. <laughs> and and could not be happier for my, you know, hyster early hysterectomy. Let me just say that. <laughs> just zap some of those emotions uh, and those hormones right out. But you know, she's really in just this hijacked emotional state. And so as uh-huh. I'm looking on, I'm just realizing like she's dealing with all the physical stuff and then just the normal insecurities and vulnerabilities of being a Mm. new parent. But what I'm also seeing is that um, it's revealing something about her heart, right? Mm. It's revealing that she cannot be 100% in control of her newborn infant. She can't Mm -hmm. be awake 24-7 to make sure he's breathing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's, there's no guarantee that she can provide him ultimate safety. 
And she's also learning to die to herself in in new ways, which, quite frankly, are really hard at times. She's Mm -hmm. very social. She's a a lot like her mom. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And we are extra, extra, extra extroverts. And so just having your life come to a complete halt where you feel so isolated and alone um, has been, you know, it's been really hard for her. And it's just, again, mm-hmm. exposing like, this is motherhood. She even said, Mom, I know this is just the path of motherhood. It's going to be a continual death to self. But, you know, I, I was thinking about our, our conversation today and just how, how God is looking at KK in the anxiety mm. and the worry. Mm-hmm. Um, she's not, you know, this isn't some sort of high-handed sin where she's putting her fist in God's face. This is just hard. And mm-hmm. so I know the Lord is speaking so gently to her, inviting her into trust, inviting her, trust me, KK. And I love the verse in Isaiah forty eleven. I just clung to this verse when I had little ones. It says, God tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Yeah. And so, yes, KK mm-hmm. doesn't has going to have to grow through her worry and anxiety to trust God. But God is coming to her, I believe, and dealing with her like a gentle father and a good shepherd. And not just her with young. I mean, I, I think there's some, uh, some particularity about that promise for new moms that I do love. But I also think that we take all the fear not commands in the scripture and we hear them from a tone that I'm not really sure is the tone that God has towards us. So um, Ed Welch is has written an article, um, I think it's called Fear Is Not Sin. And he um, he really challenged me to recognize that when I hear the fear not commands, and I think somebody said there are like 365 of them, mm-hmm. um, one for every day of the year, which mm-hmm. I love that idea. But I hear them as these um, very direct, um, uh, shaking your finger in my face commands of like, don't be afraid, you know, like mm-hmm. stern. <laughs> and he has just written a beautiful article to challenge us that that what God's tone towards us there is more in line with Luke 12, 31, where he says, fear not little flock. The only mm. place he's used this little phrase, little flock, and that little flock is like really um, a nod to our frailty, a nod to our, our weakness. And so that this this fear not in the scripture that's repeated 365 times is more of an entreaty. Like, don't be afraid. Like, I'm here. I'm with you. You don't have to be afraid. And so when I think about KK with a newborn, I would say to her, don't be afraid. I wouldn't shake my finger in her face, right? So why would I think that God is, right? And so I just love if we could hear that um, entreaty differently, if we could hear that this is a God who's sympathetic with us, who understands who Psalm 103, he remembers our frame, he knows we're dust. I just, I I love that. Like, he knows how frail we are. And he's yes. very gently reminding us, you don't have to be afraid because I'm with you. Yeah. I love that. And I do think it's a whole different way we tend to think about the commands to not be anxious and fearful. Uh, maybe we could even post that article in our show notes for people to mm-hmm. have easy access to it. It's a, it's a good challenge and a good way to think when we know the heart of God for his children. And we know the heart of God for our children. Just like you said, that's not how I'm approaching KK in this season. 
Right. I'm coming yeah. in to be with her and to serve her and to love her and to encourage her. So Yeah. And I love when you say, Brenda, like, why do I think I'm a better parent than God? Right. You know, why do I think I'm a more <laughs> gentle, kind, loving parent than God? Right. Like right. I think about that a lot because it does challenge me to remember what my posture is towards my children and and his posture towards me is so much more gentle, more kind, yes. more loving. Absolutely. Well, we also want to recognize that anxiety um, is a whole person response that impacts all of us, our mm. thinking, our feelings, our body and behaviors. And this is one thing I love about having the Bible as our guide and the wisdom of God is it's just a much more mm. robust approach than mm. a lot of the counseling methods, honestly, that are out there that may key into one of these, just looking at the body, just looking at the feelings, just looking at your thinking, just looking you know, at the behaviors. But we want to have a holistic view, really, when we talk about all of the issues in this session, it's one of the things we want to do. But one of the ways that our um, that anxiety does impact us is through our thinking. Because when we sense a threat or a danger, our mind goes into overdrive. And that's part mm-hmm. of that flight, fight, freeze, um, you know, part of our brain that kind of mm-hmm. automatically kicks in. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, all of the what ifs. I mean, if if you if you want to know if you're a warrior, then track how many times you say what if, what if, what if, what if, what if. Right. And it's like the what ifs begat, beget, begat, beget, beget the next what if. You know, you you kind of mm-hmm. get on a roll and they kind of rush in like a flood. And um and I think for many of us by nature, we we catastrophize or mm-hmm. imagine worst case scenarios pretty quickly. And our yeah. capacity to do this is pretty impressive because the rate at which we talk to ourselves is, I can't even remember remember the numbers, Alex, but it's a lot. And I talk fast and I talk a lot. So I know it's for me, my self-talk must just sound really like on, you know, when you turn up your vol of the speed on your YouTube videos or a video (laughs) you're watching, it could be normal 1.2 point. I'm pretty sure that I'm talking to myself at time and a half. Yeah. (laughs) It's like thousands and thousands of words per second. Yeah. I would say like, yeah, yeah, like 30,000 words in a minute or something. Mm -hmm, It's really mm -hmm, crazy. mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And so what happens even in that is I'm no longer even concerned about my concern. Now I'm concerned about all the things that might happen as a result of my concern. You know, it just has this Mm -hmm. way of mushrooming and growing. And I was thinking about this example, which I'm a little embarrassed to share, but I think it brings home the point. I came home one day from work expecting my husband to already be home. Um, But after some time went by, he didn't show up and I began to worry because it was just really unusual that he hadn't reached out to me. And my thoughts at first began reasonably. I was like, oh, he probably just got tied up at the office and he's working. He'll be home soon. But then I tried calling him, you know, it went longer and I tried calling him and he didn't answer. And I called again and, he, and then my mind started racing to all the possibilities. What if he was in a car accident on the way home? Now, Alex, he mm-hmm. lives a mile from our house. <laughs> I could probably hear the accident or the sirens. Yeah. What if he was carjacked? Somebody put yeah. a gun to his head because I had read an article about a week ago of that happening in, you know, some other state. What if he had a heart attack? in his office and no one's around. I mean, he'd just been to the doctor and realized that he's having these, you know, like sugar processing issues. Um, And, you know, then my next thought was, what am I going to do without him? How am I going to live? And now all of a sudden I'm feeling sad and I'm getting tears in my eyes. Well, then, you know, about an hour later, he walks through the door and I'm like, where have you been? I've been worried to death about you. And he's just like looking at me going, "Uh, honey, I, I just was at the exercise class. 
right right down uh-huh. the road. And, you know, the thing is, is that that's where he was. There was nothing to worry about. He had failed to tell me, and that was fine. But at any rate, it was just such an example of something so yeah. simple and daily in my life, but how quickly just my my thinking went to the worst possible scenario. Um, and then again, how it just led me to to even more worry and then eventual just, you know, I'm seeing him gone and what my life is going to be like as a widow. Yeah. Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's and, so sad. And and I, I love the example because it's such an everyday um, common example of how your entire day can get hijacked by one thought. And I call it cascading. They just cascade. They just come faster yep. and faster. And not only was your thinking hijacked, your feelings were hijacked. Mm. You're, you're upset. You're in despair. Then you move into... Uh, anger and you move into, you know, like, like so many um, uh, feelings get activated with anxiety. But the other thing that gets activated is our body. So Mm -hmm. um, we have this impact of just thoughts, feelings and body, and it's all happening pretty simultaneously. So it's hard to pull apart what's actually happening. But we have all these physical sensations, like our heart rate speeds up, our breathing speeds up, our muscles tense. We, um, you know, we may feel sick on our stomach, but all these different things happen. And then what can happen is as we have these physical sensations, we actually begin to feel anxious about the physical sensations themselves. And so now we see even more of a cascading effect of like, why does my chest feel tight? Oh my gosh, am I having a heart attack? Maybe he had a heart attack and I'm having a heart attack too. Like, so there's, there's this cascading effect of the way that we respond to anxiety. The other thing I want to say about the body is how often we're describing how our thoughts um, kind of activated this whole cascade. But there are times, and this is part of, of the way that suffering is, I mean, that anxiety is suffering. There are times when our body's activated before our thoughts can even mm-hmm. catch up. And so an example of that may be if you've ever been in a car accident and you find yourself approaching the intersection where it happened. And you may not even be thinking about that car accident, but your body is aware. And what's called your implicit memory is informing you of what happened. And you may begin to have bodily sensations. This happens with any kind of trauma. I find it happens with my chronic pain. If if very specific twinges or spasms happen in my body, Um, Before I even have time to think about what's happening, I almost have like a little bit of a shock response. Like I start to shake. I start to have very, very shallow breathing because my body's already anticipating the Mm. worst type of pain. And it could just have been a little tweak. And so these are places where trauma actually starts to enter into our anxiety responses and where our body kind of can take over and respond to what it perceives as danger, even if our thoughts haven't already taken us there. So um, what we know more than anything is that over time, anxiety is going to have a detrimental effect on our body. It's going Mm -hmm. to begin to um, place stress on the body, and we are going to have health problems. Um, We're going to maybe have chronic pain. We're going to have heart issues. We're going to have high blood pressure, all these different things where our body, where chronic anxiety and chronic stress is going to begin to have a wear and tear on the body. Mm-hmm. As you were talking, we don't have time to get into this on this podcast. Maybe we could do another one. But I was thinking about panic attacks mm-hmm. and sort of that idea where your body is hijacked before mm-hmm. you even really know what it is that you're anxious about. 
Um, yes. And that's a very, very uncomfortable feeling when you have those um, somatic kind of effects and you feel like your body is taken over. Um, yeah, the anxiety of the anxiety becomes a real thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, our anxiety is going to be manifested in our behavior. And, you know, our reaction to worry can either be to try to control the situation. So if you're a control person, you might evaluate how much anxiety is in your life and playing a role. Or uh, we try to minimize our discomfort and we find mm-hmm. ways to comfort ourselves in the midst of the distress. So, you know, I, I know when I worry, a lot of times that worry leads me to how, you know, what people or circumstances can I try to change, control, whatever, but we know that that's not usually very successful. We're not changing people, and it's even hard for us to change circumstances, except for the part that we have any responsibility and control over. And then, you know, immersing ourselves in some sort of pleasure for distraction. I mean, this is why people uh, oftentimes go to things like food, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, somebody who's a comfort eater, uh, somebody who is engaged with pornography might go there if they're feeling anxious because they're looking for a distraction. They're looking for a way to comfort themselves. Um, you know, even even good things like exercising, somebody might over-exercise. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's all kinds of things. Shopping, you know, get my credit card out and that's a sh- shopping mm-hmm. therapy, like whatever I'm anxious about. But what typically happens with those kind of Uh, efforts is that they just increase our anxiety because now Mm -hmm. we have more things to be anxious about. Um, You know, now I'm concerned about my weight or my health, or I'm concerned about Mm -hmm. being caught that I did this thing. Um, And just the self-harm that can be produced uh, as a result of anxiety can be really bad. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as we look at our behaviors, we begin to realize that anxiety a lot of times uh, produces behaviors that are self-focused and not God-focused. Mm-hmm. And uh, rather than producing trust in God and love for my neighbor, anxiety tempts me to turn inward to self-reliance, either to change things, control things, or to provide myself with comfort. Mm-hmm. But Alex, God actually intends for us to use, mm-hmm. or for Him to use, our anxiety in good ways. And there's mm-hmm. actually some good that can come from anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you've got and a tool so, that will help us do that. <laughs> yeah, so uh, what we want to do in this series of podcasts is not just talk about the topic itself, but we want to give a tool, something practical to help. The tool I'm going to give today really could be used for a lot of different struggles, but I find it particularly helpful with anxiety. I don't know what to call it except visual theology. That's what I've named it. And um and I, I, I seriously probably um, give this to everyone I talk to. It's just been something really powerful for me, and I've seen it be really powerful for other people. It's really based on the idea that all throughout Scripture, really from beginning to end, we see God using uh, pictures. That um, I think it was Ed Welch again who said that um, we have a visual theology. God gives um, pictures he, that like the shield, the tower, the fortress to remind us of his protection. He speaks in metaphor a lot, the good shepherd, the husband who's going to protect and care for us. And then we see Jesus bringing this in um, to the New Testament as he taught using everyday imagery in the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about the birds. He's talking about the the flowers um, as he's reminding people not to worry and to trust him. So throughout this scripture, we see visual imagery to communicate deep spiritual truth. And that's really what we're going to talk about. Yeah. 
Uh, one of the things that I learned in Israel that I loved was exactly what you're talking about. And I love so often when you and I come together because the Lord has shown us something from a different, like I've been to mm-hmm. Israel, you went, you mm-hmm. took a class and we come together mm-hmm. and we're like, oh, this is so cool. The, you know, God's showing us the same thing in different ways. But one of the things that Marty Solomon talks about in his podcast on Bema is the difference between Western and Eastern thinking. And Marty is who I went mm-hmm. to Israel with. And it was uh, one of the first teachings I heard him give because it was at the intro of his podcast. And I just loved it. And then we talked about this a lot in Israel. But he basically talks about how Western thinking, we tend to use words, ideas, and definitions. Mm-hmm. But in an Eastern mindset, they use pictures, stories, and prose. So he gives the example, if you ask a Westerner to describe God, the Westerner is going to use definitions and data. We're going to say God is mm-hmm. sovereign. God mm-hmm. is omniscient. God is even love. Like we're going to use those definitions and descriptive kind of words. But he said, if you ask an Easterner to yeah. describe God, he's going to say, he's a shepherd. He's a fortress. He is mm-hmm. a king. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, both are needed. Marty would say there's not a right or wrong way. Like we need right. both of these as we approach life and understanding who God is. And I think even when we talk about anxiety, I know in our uh, next episode, I'm going to use a journal that's going to focus more on maybe what I would say a Western way of thinking. Yeah. But I love that you're focusing in this episode more on that Eastern way of thinking. Yeah. And the reason why I find this particularly helpful with anxiety is because of what happens in our brain in the midst of anxiety. So we know that when we're under great distress, our um, nervous system changes, right? We move out of our, and I always have to stop. We move out of our parasympathetic into our sympathetic nervous system. Sympathetic nervous system is what we know as fight, flight, freeze, and now they've added fawn. And so we move into that um, sympathetic nervous system, which means we have certain reactions in our body. Our breathing actually becomes more shallow. We move from what we call our top brain to our lower brain. And that's because um, our body is preparing to um, protect us from danger. It's a survival mechanism that God created us for. And so um, what's interesting about that, though, is that as we move into that lower brain, what goes offline is the part of our brain that allows us to be logical. And, and we can see that, right? We can't, we, we, we go to those worst case scenarios that the next day we laugh about. And it's really because like our logical, linear, analytic thinking goes offline and we're not able to reason ourselves out of anxiety. So I find that when we ask people to memorize a Bible verse, um, we're asking them to access part of their brain that they're really having difficulty getting to the the words, the language, the reasoning. But what's interesting is that where visual memory is stored in our brain is is closer to our lower brain. And so it's easier for us to access a picture than it is to access words in those moments of anxiety. And again, I think this is just a beautiful way that our creator remembers our frame and he knows that we're dust. He knows Mm -hmm. how he created us. And so he gives us these visual pictures in scripture. I think the key to visual theology is that we don't wait until we're in the anxiety moment to try to create imagery that speaks to us because Mm. we can't, right? right? That part of our brain's offline. So the key to this whole exercise, so to speak, is to meditate on visual images that have meaning to us 
before we get in those situations so that by the time anxiety hits, we have a picture that we pull up that's already been marinated, so to speak, with so much truth that it communicates that truth without words. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think it's really, like you said, God knowing our frame is so precious because if you think about it, we don't think in words. I'm talking to you and I'm not writing words in my, you know, there's not the spelling or words aren't flashing in my brain. We think in pictures and movies. And so even though we're, even though I'm speaking words, it is so interesting to me that there's actually pictures is what's what's happening or movies is what is actually going on in my mind. So I love that cooperation um, with the way God has made us. And I love your point also that if our logical brain goes offline, then we need to be able to access something in that moment. And you've got a few ways you've used this. I'd love for you to share some examples. So it can be really simple, and we can use the images that Scripture's already given us. We already talked about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is directly talking about worry, and He's reminding us, like, I take care of the birds, and they don't, ha- they don't worry about what they're eating. So I'm going to brought my little visual for anyone who's watching So one of my visual theologies is just simply a sparrow, a small bird that Jesus is holding, that he is feeding, that he is caring for, even in the midst of the storm. And so I just build a theology around um, going on a walk one day, and I see a bird swoop down into the lake and snatch a fish up. And I was like, oh, Jesus, you're caring for the bird. Like, you're going to care for me. You haven't forgotten the bird. You're not going to forget me. And so I just continue to add to that theology of the way that he cares for birds as I watch them in my yard, as I read scripture. And then um, what I encourage people to do is not always just have a visual picture, but even to have an object. So this is my little bird and she sits. um, This is just a little ceramic bird for anybody who's listening and watching. She sits right by my kitchen sink. And so when I'm washing dishes and that tends to be a time I worry when I'm cleaning up and my mind can go free to get back to the bird and that be a reminder that God has promised to care for us and and he um, entreats us not to worry. So that goes to a specific image in scripture. Like we already see it. God's already given it to us that way. So that can be an easy one-to-one. But I also encourage people to think about um, what their particular worries are and how to connect them maybe to Um, truths in other ways, like a scripture that they love. And one of them for me is I have a lot of worry around um, getting it right and doing it perfectly. And so a lot of anxiety gets created as I analyze my performance on things. And so a scripture that's always been meaningful to me is the end of Jude, where it's the benediction at the end of Jude to him who is able to keep you from falling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. That Jesus is presenting me to the Father without fault. And he's doing it joyfully. He is excited for his Father to meet me, not because of my performance, right? That he's the one who keeps me from falling. He's the one who's presenting me perfect, and he's doing it joyfully. And so I love that verse. And then one day, I had a visual theology for it. And that happened as I'm sitting in my office, meeting with my pastor, and my office door is open, and his daughter was about four years old at the time, and she comes running in, and she says, Daddy, 
we're playing on the playground and we have to go to the bathroom. And there's no other person here at this point. But apparently she's playing with a friend and the bathroom's right next door to my office. And so they run in. And so about three minutes later, she runs back into my office and she says, Daddy, guess what? And he says, what? And she takes her hands and I do wish you could see me. But if you picture the um, the kind of the Vanna White presentation, you know, shaking her hands and she goes, here's Libby. And Libby comes running around the corner and she's all excited. And it's just the cutest little, most innocent. She's excited that she was playing with her friend. Her dad knows Libby, right? Her dad's met <laughs> Libby a hundred times. But she was excited to present her friend to her dad. And all of a sudden it, it clicked with me, uh, this joy that she came to her father with. Oh. And I had a visual theology for Jude 24, right? Like Uh it was right there in front of me. Mm. And as I meditate on the verse and that experience, that picture of this little girl excited with her daddy becomes Mm. a visual theology for me of Jesus with joy before the Father. Mm. Oh, I love that. That's just precious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We have to be mindful of these things, though, Alex. I think so often— Like These are the sort of things we need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to make us aware, to help us pay attention. We just miss so much of what God is trying to teach us in the Mm -hmm. day-to-day about who He is and what He's done. And it's just a great reminder for me to just look at my day as I go or look back at my day and just say, where did I see the Father? Mm -hmm. Where where was there an application of Scripture that He made alive and real to me, because I think we're just moving so fast that we don't even take the time to, to slow down to notice. Yeah. And one thing I love about what you're saying, Brenda, is that um, it, it there is some particularity to this. Like, I don't know that anybody else will have the visual theology that I have around G24. Like, it was right. an experience that I had that's important to me over a scripture that's very dear to me. And so... Your visual theology might not be something that anybody else really understands why that resonates with you. And so one of my examples is also just from um, a friend who really struggled um, and had a lot of anxiety around, um, did God forgive her? And again, having to get it right all the time. And so we began to talk about, was there a narrative? Was there a a story in scripture that was precious to her, that reminded her that she was forgiven? And I like this example because um, I think narrative is powerful and it can be hard to create a visual theology around narrative, but she found a way to do it. So her, her favorite story in scripture is the story where Um, Peter has denied Jesus, and Jesus has um, died, and he is resurrected, and he comes and he meets them on the beach while they're out fishing, and he prepares breakfast for them. And um, that's such a a beautiful interaction anyway with all the sensory um, details that are going on, all the restorative elements that are going on in the story. But what she particularly loved is the reminder that Peter denied Jesus and he forgave him and that he pursued him in forgiving him. Like he went after Peter to let Peter know that he was forgiven. And she said, I said, well, what, what could be a visual image that would remind you of that story that would just instantly call that story to your mind? 
And she thought for a moment and her whole face lit up and she was like, Alex, I have baskets of seashells in Mm. my bedroom. Mm. And she said, I never thought about how much I love seashells and Mm. I love that story that takes place on the beach. She Mm. said, I'm going to put seashells all around my house to remind me. Mm. And so she immediately connected that story to something else that she loved She made sure she had it different places to remind her. And there's probably, I don't know if there's anyone else in the world that sees a seashell and thinks, God, Jesus has forgiven me, (laughs) but she does. And it communicates to her, right? And that's the beauty of this is that as she continues to meditate more and more on that story, that seashell is going to have greater depth of meaning to her. And that in those moments when her head is spinning or my head is spinning of, did I get it right or does God forgive me? Then what she can do is call up the imagery of a seashell and a beach. And and hopefully that brings her nervous, begins to calm her nervous system down. And then she's able to move into reminding herself of the truth that that image is infused with. Mm -hmm. And I think it's such a precious way to see the personal nature of God's love for us very mm-hmm. specific that the Holy Spirit would show me something because He knows that it's important to me. Yes. And making those connections, I think, you know, you hear people call them as like God winks or a God kiss or yes. a God hug. Mm-hmm. But just that moment when you're like, you know, all these, you know, uh, firings in your brain and in your heart and your heart swells. It's like, God, you know me. You see yeah. me. You've mm-hmm. connected these dots that nobody else in the world could have connected for me. And yeah. Um, yeah, it's so special. Yeah. yeah, we're back to Kurt Thompson's quote, aren't we? Of like, it doesn't matter what we know, it matters that we're known. Yeah. And in those moments when we connect to what's particular to us. And so I just encourage people, we're going to, we've got a handout to help walk through some of these ideas. But I encourage people to think about what images capture them and ask themselves why, what stories or Bible verses capture them. I mean, I probably have three or four more visual theologies that I routinely take my mind to. And um, and and so think about um, maybe even it's a phrase of a hymn that you can connect back to Scripture. But something, if it's important to you, if it's captured you, there's probably a reason, like mm-hmm. you're saying, Brenda, that the Holy Spirit has caused mm-hmm. you to be captured by that. Yeah. And so think about how you can build a visual picture around that. And the more time you spend meditating on those truths and connect it to that picture, the greater um, efficacy, like the, the, the more the tool will work in your life, yeah. the more that picture will mean to you. And it doesn't have to make sense to anyone else. It mm-hmm. just has to make sense to you. And I think it can almost be just really f- like a fun interaction with the Holy Spirit of asking Him, like, what's meaningful to me? And again, what anxiety is, is that rumination, right? Like ruminating on the bad. And this is a way to change that into ruminating, meditating in the good sense of meditating on truth. And so it's a great exchange. Yeah. Yeah. That's great, Alex. Thank you for sharing that. Maybe on some of our future social media posts, you can pop on and share some of those other uh, mm-hmm. visuals that you have. Because I think the more illustrations and examples we have will help us with our own journey um, mm-hmm. in applying this tool. Well, the final thing we want to do with each one of our episodes is talk about a body tool, because 
Uh, we want to have a holistic approach. When we talk mm-hmm. about we are uh, embodied spirits, we are an inner man and an outer man. And so for anxiety, the body tool we want to highlight is breathing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to link uh, one breathing guide that I think you like that you can speak more to if you want to. But mm-hmm. um, there are a lot of breathing exercises online. There are apps now that you can use. But I think the point we really want to make is that breathing forces your body to relax Mm-hmm. Um, it lowers your blood pressure. It slows your heart rate. And so really, it has a physiological impact if you learn how to do these breathing exercises. It's not, you know, sometimes we think these can be, oh, this is weird. Why are we doing this? We're biblical people, but we're biblical people who have bodies. Yes, <laughs> and we know, right. And so there is a real um, component to this that the breathing we know helps steady and stabilize our bodies in moments of anxiety, worry, and Fear. And then the other thing is just it's impossible to think about the future when we're focused on the present. And when you are first, particularly, really, anytime you're doing breathing exercises um, and you're having to force yourself to count your breaths, to notice how your body feels, you can't focus on anything else. You have to focus right here on the present, what's going on. And um, that that's really helpful. It, it actually even helps us practice uh, what you're talking about, like our attention like what we're paying yeah. attention to and um, being able to pay more attention. So yeah, there's, there's no faster way to move our nervous system from um, our sympathetic back into our parasympathetic from fight, flight, or freeze back to rest and digest than breath. And it seems so, I mean, I feel people rolling their eyes sometimes when I tell them they have to practice their breathing because it <laughs> seems right. so elementary but um, uh, several months ago, I was in a lot of pain. I was at the physical therapist, and right before I left, she said, Alex, make sure you're belly breathing. And I said, okay. She goes, no, I want you to do it right now. And I was in a lot of pain that day, and I could not. I could mm. not get my breath down into my belly. My chest kept rising and falling, and I had to get out in my car completely alone. And to your point, Brenda, I had to be extremely present with my body, put my hand on my chest, put my hand on my belly, and make my belly rise because my nervous system was so ramped up from pain. And so it does seem really elementary, but it actually, when our nervous system is overactivated, it's very hard. And so I do love these videos. Um, they, uh, I think they've done a good job of not becoming too like woo-woo meditative. There's some calming music. They're counting for you. And what I have found personally is that when our nervous system is ramped up, I'm counting too fast and I need someone to count for me to slow me down. And there's a particular four, seven, eight breathing exercise that is supposed to help reset the nervous system. A longer exhale helps to um, slow down the nervous system response. So um, we will link that because I do think they're helpful. And again, I will say, even about breathing, just like visual theology or any tool that we use, particularly with anxiety, we need to practice them outside of the anxious experience. Yes. And yes. so breathing has become a literal daily practice for me because mm. the more that I um, practice correct breathing or breathing that slows my nervous system down, the more I'm able to engage it when I am anxious. Excellent. Well, I think we better wrap this episode up. I'm not even sure how long we've gone, but hopefully it's been helpful. Um, We're going to link the video that you like to the breathing. Um, Mm -hmm. Also, we're going to link the visual theology handout in our show notes, and hopefully folks can work on some of their own um, 
visual theology imagery. And I'm in our next episode of Wisdom for Life's Common Struggles. We're going to introduce another anxiety tool using uh, Philippians 4, 4 through 9. It's a verse that's common probably to a lot of us, but I hope that this tool will be useful in walking through anxiety. So we want to thank everyone for listening, and we do hope this episode has been helpful uh, if you're struggling with anxiety. And we also hope that it will help you with others, because uh, part of our ministry, as we know, we would like for you to take this information and use it in your own life, but also to be able to turn around and use it in the lives of those in your sphere of influence who may also struggle with anxiety, which in mm-hmm. turn will also help you with your anxiety, right? Yes. <laughs> so, well, thanks so much for listening. We are so appreciative to have all of you with us today. For visuals and discussion questions for this podcast, sign up at knownministries.org. Because we learn better together, we'd love for you to share this podcast with others and gather to discuss it. If you take a moment to like, follow, subscribe, and rate this podcast, it'll help tremendously. We'd love to connect on social at Known Ministries. This podcast is made possible by generous donors, executive producer Malia Smith, and engineers and producers Shane Selby and Zachary Tate-Smith. The information presented is for the enjoyment of all and is not intended as either medical advice or counseling, nor is it specific to any particular individual. It is not intended to replace counseling, medical care, or professional advice. Please contact 911 if you're having an emergency.